This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. When the jury panel comes into the courtroom and the bailiff says, all rise, I know we're here. And it doesn't matter who they are, nobody should be above the law. A lot of us talk about that, but you actually done it. That's how you also maintain quality control over your practice. Yeah. That's a question I get asked a lot, and here's the answer. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation. Your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Trial Lawyer Nation. I'm here with my partner, Sonia Rodriguez, and we're going to do one of our table talks where we answer questions that you, our listeners, have sent in. Sonia, how are you doing today? I am great. It's good to see you. It's great to see you. It's great to have my last full day at the office before going on my wild four-week vacation. (laughs) (laughs) That's stressful, I bet. Uh, Yes and no. I was liberating to practice at a place where I can take time off and know that uh, things are still going to move in the right way while I'm gone. Nothing terrible is going to happen while you're gone. Great things are going to happen while I'm gone. That's what happens when you have great people. So let's go and dive into some of the questions. Uh, The first one comes from a listener in Massachusetts. As a young lawyer at a small firm, we are wrestling with the age-old practice management topic of how many cases to have. I know that less cases will make me a better lawyer, but like many of us, we were taught early on that volume was king. We've all heard the snapshot stories about the lawyers who used to have many hundreds of cases and now have less than 10. I would be very interesting in hearing a tabletop episode discuss this in detail. So Sonia, what are your, where, are you, where have you come from in your career and what are your current thoughts on this? Well, I know that, um, and I think that a lot of lawyers, maybe even young lawyers in particular, have a misunderstanding of what it is we're saying about less cases. You certainly don't want less bad cases. I mean, if you are going to trim down your docket, I mean, they've got to be very, very finely uh, selected. Um, So I think it's dangerous for a young lawyer to say, I'm going to trim down my docket so that I can be a better lawyer with small cases, I mean, smaller docket. And if they're all really not going to keep the lights on, that's a very dangerous economic decision. So um, I think that the question from the listener uh, maybe makes me feel a little alarmed if that's what people are thinking that we're saying or that thinking what people are doing. But with that said, I have come from a practice um, of having uh, partners who have dual loads, like you'll have one partner who handles big cases and more complex cases, and then a partner who has a different type of docket where you're keeping the lights on and it's a, it's a larger volume case load, but there's an understanding or a consensus of that's the way the business model is going to be. Um, you know, my practice has never been, um, you know, just a small docket. Uh, I think that's a very scary uh, prospect, but there are people who have said that it works, and I think the only way it works is if they are very, very finely cultivated cases. Yeah, I think I've gone full spectrum in my practice. I mean, at one time I was a 
I'd say a sole practitioner. I was the only lawyer at the firm. I had a lot of support staff. We had over 200 open car wreck cases at the time. Uh, but the average case value was not very high. Uh, it was not a fun way to practice law. Uh, but with those cases I had, I had, you know, 10 low impact chiropractor only minimum policy limits cases in my office and did the best possible job on those 10 cases, uh, I would not have been able to pay the rent in my, uh, my secretary, uh, much less myself. Uh, so, you know, given the type of case that I was able to attract at that time, the lower volume did not make sense. That being said, looking back, a lot of the cases I did at that time did not were not economically viable. I uh, was taking cases that, you know, now that I'm more experienced on the business side, we did not make money. I mean, we paid a referral fee on a case that we litigated and half the time had to try and then would get a, you know, a four-figure fee that we'd split up. Uh, you know, what, if you looked at what it would cost to pay rent, to uh, market to other lawyers, to pay the staff, it was not very profitable and, and very a small number of my cases I had then actually generated the income. And so, you know, the, there is an issue there. I think the you need to decide what you are. You can't be both a volume lawyer, and I, please don't anyone get offended by this, but you can't be both a volume lawyer and a boutique high quality on one case lawyer at the same time. If you're a volume lawyer, then you have to say, there's trade-offs. You're gonna say, I'm going to handle more cases, and I'm going to have to develop a system for handling them, and the system is going to address, you know, 80% of the issues and 80% of the cases. And I am going to have to learn to accept that some things are going to go wrong, and cases aren't going to get worked up quite as much as I'd like them to, and but most of them settle anyway, so it won't make a huge difference. And you have to accept that some mistakes are going to get made, and it's not fun. Uh, and you have to be okay with that. Uh, that's not me. It's not my. I would agonize over things. I would agonize over not doing everything perfectly. I would agonize over not uh, over a mistake possibly having been made even a case a year later. Like I learned something new at a seminar. Oh my! I wish I did that that case I had last year. Uh, so I found that from my temperament, the volume firm does not work. But the reality is, there are a lot of lawyers across the country who are um, building heavy volume. Uh, practices and making a ton of money and are quite successful but is it your thinking that it's the personality type that's involved you kind of have to know yourself before you know where you're gonna what's well, a couple things one it is what is your personality type because to, to run a volume practice you have to have the business sense to run it as a business uh, you have to have the organizational skills to create systems and processes uh, to get things going. Uh, and then you have to, I think, step back and say, what are the cases that don't make sense for this system? And if there is a case that's going to take a lot of focus, uh, a case that's different than all the other cases in your system, so you know, something really big or a different type of case, I think you either have to do one of three things hire a specific section that's going to be a low volume section within your firm, which means probably a different pay scale, a different model, or just say no to them. I'll refer them out and bring in co-counsel to, to give that kind of uh, focus. Just like I've had to learn, you know, when we get calls on cases that aren't the right cases for us, and it's been hard to do, 
you know, is say no. Uh, or, you know, I've learned increasingly I can do this case, but there's another lawyer that can do it just as well. Uh, and so, and I'm, you know, I had uh, calls recently for truck wreck cases in Georgia and Minnesota, and we do out-of-state cases if they're big enough. But these are cases that, frankly, we would be better off working on our Texas cases and not doing all that travel given the size of the case. And there were great lawyers in Georgia and Minnesota that I felt could do just as good of a job. And so I told my referring lawyer, I, I deferred the ability to make a fee, but I told my referring lawyer, hey, why don't you go meet Pete Kester in Minnesota? Here's Joe Freed in Georgia. They're great lawyers. They will handle your case. Uh, no offense to anyone else. It was just the people I, I thought of in those states. Uh, so with this young lawyer in Massachusetts who was kind enough to send us this question, he's a or she's a uh, she's at a small firm and uh, a young lawyer. So how many cases should that individual have? I mean, I wish I had a magic number. Uh, I think you need to be realistic about a couple things. One, you know, temperament-wise. Is your temperament more a temperament of running a business or more of a temperament of trying to have the art of being a lawyer and wanting to spend the time and maximize each case? I think and another question, too, is how much can you afford? Because the reality is that personal injury practices are very, very expensive to run. Yeah, that would have mitigated against volume, well, at least the volume of cases that are going to take money to work up. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think also a really, and this is difficult to do, because you have to both remove ego and remove uh, being overly self-critical, uh, which is where it, where are you in the marketplace of cases? So when I was a young lawyer doing those fender bender cases, if I had made a decision at that point in my time, I'm only gonna handle catastrophic trucking cases and death cases. Uh, I would have not had any work because nobody was going to give a three-year lawyer those kind of cases. I mean, no, uh, at least not in any volume. I mean, there might be some someone that liked me for some reason, but I wasn't there yet. Uh, so if my choice at that time was to take on that business model and I wanted to be a solo, uh, that would not have worked. Uh, you know, now, 20-something years later, I have the luxury of taking that position, but I've paid the dues. Uh, and so I think part of it is you know, how much money do you need to bring in? What can you make off these cases? How many hours do you want to work? Uh, but also, what kind of cases can you attract? And, you know, if, if you're at a point where you can only attract the smaller cases, then I think your choices are either to figure out a way to handle enough, enough of, of a volume of them where you're comfortable but you can also make a living, or to go work for somebody else uh, if you want to do the lower thing that has the lower volume thing. And I think to the young lawyer in Massachusetts at the small firm, the reality is even after we've been practicing 20 years, we still struggle with the question of how many cases is the right number of cases to have because the reality in our practice is that you have a dry spell of no cases coming in and you start feeling very, very inclined to take the very next one that comes in the door even if it's not going to meet your criteria. Um, for the sake of knowing that you have a case to work on for next year. Yeah, but I think, I think that's a that can be a big mistake because I tried TV advertising uh, about ten years ago. Uh, absolute failure for me. It was not again. I'm not. I've learned that I'm not the volume person. I thought I could be, 
Um, and what happened is when you first start advertising, uh, you tend to get the cases that all the other advertisers had rejected because the, the you know they go to the people they've heard of and seen on the TV for ten years and uh, you're up and you can't do match the spend and so you tend to get that. And I ended up taking some cases saying, well, i got to get something off these ads. i spent all this money. I've, I've hired new people to take the intakes. Uh, and I think we lost money on almost all. Now that I've gone back and analyzed how much work it took uh, to get some of those slip and fall cases <laughs> turned into money, for example, which I had never done a slip and fall case before uh, and haven't taken any sense. Taken any sense. But the, I think when you, fall, when you succumb to that temptation of, well, nothing's come in for a while, so I'm going to take a bad case, if you're working on a contingent fee, I mean, a bad case is not does not make sense to work on. Right. And uh, something else I want to talk about on the volume, if you don't mind. I, th I think, you know, one, a lot of younger lawyers that are listening, you do not have control. If you're working in a law firm, you can make suggestions to your boss, but you don't have control over this. And so I've been putting a lot of thought into, okay, I've got way too many cases to do like to be a true artist and give every case you know the attention I want to give it how do I improve as a lawyer and how do I convince my boss to let me have a smaller docket that that will be more profitable for the firm if I have a smaller docket and have more time I would say pick your one or two biggest cases now that might be your one or two cases that have you know a thousand dollars worth of property damage because all the rest have less than 500 are the one or two cases that have a herniated disc because all the rest of yours are soft tissue injury. They might not be death cases, but pick your one or two best cases and spend half your time working on those two cases, if you can, uh, and work the heck out of those cases, and then let the system work up the rest as the volume model. And if you show that, hey, we are getting better results on my best cases, one, your boss is more likely to give you more good and better cases. Uh, but two, you're also more likely to say, look, see, when I have the time to work them up, then I can actually do a better job and make you more money. So I wish I had a clear answer for people, um, but it really is a trial and error thing. But I will say that having a large volume of cases that don't make you money, you know, it's like that old uh, skit, like, you know, they have a change-making business and they're going to give four quarters, no, five quarters for a dollar. Well, how are they going to make money? Well, they're going to make up on volume. You know, you just, you lose, you can lose more and more money uh, the more cases you take if you take the wrong cases. And so that kind of transitions us into the next question from a listener in South Dakota. Um, do firms making, uh, the listener asks, do firms making a transition into reducing their caseload spend less on marketing and instead focus on referrals and when they do that do these firms find that with less cases they end up reducing staff one of my fears is that my practice has highs and lows in revenue it can torture any of us so the thinking becomes that the only way to neutralize that is with a lot of cases is there truth there or is that a myth what do you think well, I want to start with the last part of the question. I think it's absolutely a myth that having a lot of cases uh, helps with the problem of having the highs and low in revenue. I've done it both ways, and I have found that the smaller my caseload is so far, uh, now I'm not gone down to the four cases per lawyer or anything like that, but the smaller my caseload is, actually the more steady my revenue has become. 
And the reason is that if you have too many cases, you're constantly putting out fires, you're not able to focus and push your cases to make them uh, resolve or get tried more quickly, you end up having to greedy continuances because you're not ready. Uh, and so because of that, because you're always focused on crisis after crisis after crisis, they don't fund as quickly, are for as much money, but more importantly, as quickly as they could, where when you have the right number of cases, you are pushing them and they tend to be resolving right around the time of the first, in my, at least in our practice, right around the time of that first trial setting is when the insurance companies start getting real. Well, I think that one of the things that would help lawyers in this practice uh, help them see the cost benefit of uh, the number of cases that they work on at any given time is just to do an analysis of how long that case has lived in their office. And when you take your fee, so your net fee at the end of the case, calculate that across how many months you had that case, it really humbles you to see how much or how little of a fee you earned based on how long you had it. And so I think your point is exactly right. If you have 200 cases, um, there's no way you're going to work them in, in a, work them quickly because you've got 200 cases. Um, so if you divide the fee over 24 months or however long you have to have those cases to actually get them all resolved, um, I think your fee is going to be less across the board. Now you may have more of the fee, but I would argue that if you have your cases for a shorter amount of time, you're expending less office resources on every single case. You're not um, tie. You're not tying up your money on the case expenses, and so um, being very mindful about the number of cases actually um, is helpful if you're comparing it with how long you've had the cases in the office. And when you're constantly responding to a crisis, yeah. you've got a, a deadline you're not quite ready for and you have to work all night to meet it, uh, then you are not thinking about what case is ready for demand, what I need to work up this case and get it ready where I can demand it. Uh, and being ready for trial. You know, there's, the defense is never ready for trial in the first trial setting. They're so used to having it bumped a couple times. That when we're ready to go the first trial setting, we say, no, we're not going to agree to continuance. It scares the crap out of them. And then when we do get to go to trial, we are more prepared than they are. I think it lulls business owners, trial lawyers. It lulls us into a sense of comfort when we have this great big settlement. I settled a case for a million dollars last month feels good, right? Um, it feels really good. <laughs> but if I sit down and analyze how many months that file was in the office and how many staff people had to touch that file and how much work went into it for all of these months, it can be pretty daunting. So it forces you to want to work your cases um, more efficiently because it really ensures that you're getting a bigger return on your investment of time in that case. Would you like to meet host Michael Cowan in person? If so, here's your chance. Trial Lawyer Nation is excited to invite our podcast listeners to Michael Cowan's Trucking Bootcamp on Thursday, October 10th in San Antonio, Texas. Join us for a full day of trucking education hosted by Cowan Rodriguez Peacock. This is a complimentary CLE. That's right, there's no fee to attend. However, seating is limited to 75 plaintiff attorneys. 
For details, send us an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. And now, back to the show. There's also the investment of money. The other issue when you have a large volume of cases is, you know, a case costs some amount of money all the time. I mean, there's always some cost that comes up in a case. And, you know, you have the bigger your volume, the more of your non-tax deductible cash outflow is going out, which I think makes the peaks and valleys even worse uh, because you have that constant outflow. Now, that being said, now that we have a smaller docket, I think we're spending more per case. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're spending smarter per case, too, and we're getting a better return on it. So I want to kind of go towards the beginning of the question. It says, do the firms making the tradition into reducing their caseload spend less on marketing and instead focus on referrals? I have trouble answering that question personally because I had already was already focused on referrals. Uh, I, I will say I didn't make the choice to just stop marketing to the public when I decided to try to do a higher threshold of what how big of a case I need to take. Uh, and there were a couple reasons for my decision on that. Uh, one is I looked at my average fee on, I just did trucking cases, on trucking cases that came in through uh, normal traditional marketing to the public. I looked at my average fee after paying a referral fee on cases I got on, trucking cases I got on referral. And my average fee on the referred cases was more than double my average fee on the cases that just walked in. Um, Why do you think that is? Uh, case selection. Ah. Because the majority of the cases that just walked in d- did not end up becoming big cases because people think the Lord got better. Uh, but we already had them as our client. We went ahead and finished and worked up the case. But they still, I still had to pay a staff member to work on them. I still had to have a lawyer, either myself or another lawyer at the office, work on them. Uh, and, of course, we had a marketing cost that we're not even talking about yet to get that case to come in the door. Whereas the referred cases were able to be a lot pickier, at least at this stage of the practice. Uh, and so that even after paying a substantial referral fee, we still end up making more money per case, more money per hour, because we're only working on bigger cases. And do you think psychologically there was a pull to take these cases that, that you know, were logged in as, you know, we saw your commercial? You felt compelled to take those because they saw your commercial and you knew you had invested money in the in that marketing? Absolutely. I mean, I felt like I spent this money, I've got to get some It's that uh, sunk cost fallacy. I've already spent money on something, so I've got to keep doing it because I can't waste the money I spent. Uh, and I think it caused us to have more stress and less profit uh, because of that. So... Um, you were trying to shoehorn what probably was a mediocre case into a great case because you needed the satisfaction of knowing that that investment was going to be... Uh, worse than that, I took mediocre cases because I felt like I had to get something off the ads. Like I spent the money on them, I've got to get some some of that back, I've got to somehow make this work. And at the time, I was hoping that eventually the ads would generate enough... You know, at some point in advertising uh, where it starts to bring in enough cases to good cases to sustain you and pay for itself and become profitable. I was thinking I could eventually get there and then I just realized that I don't have the temperament uh, to be a mass advertising lawyer. And so you're not saying that all of those lawyers who are listening and across the country who do spend tons of money on TV and radio advertising are throwing money out the window. Absolutely not. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I would trade bank accounts with Jim Adler or Alex Began, both of who have been on this uh, on this show? I would gladly <laughs> uh, 
uh, trade bank accounts, but the fact is I could not run Jim Adler's firm. I could not be Jim Adler. I don't have his skill set. Uh, I could not be Alex Begum. I don't have his skill set. Or John Morgan, I mean any of the big advertisers. I, I, they have a special set and, it, and it's valuable and the fact is there are a lot of clients that need justice, that need help, that are not well served by the business model you and I have. There are people who got rear-ended, um, they have a sore neck or sore back that got more or less better after 12 weeks. Uh, it doesn't make sense for you and I at this point in our career to take that case, but they need representation. The insurance companies will screw them over. They're the hardest cases to do. They need representation. Uh, and I think that business model actually can provide that representation in a more efficient and effective way than uh, we can. That's a great point. Uh, and so, you know, I have nothing but respect for that model, but it's different than the model that that meets my particular set of skills and interests. So uh, I think that if you continue to do a mass market advertising and you want to really have a selective type of practice, uh, it's difficult because to pay for the ads, I think you have to take in a larger percentage of those cases unless you just have some kind of super effective ad. And if you do, please call or email me and tell me because I'd like to I'll pay you a lot of money if I can find an ad that would just get me trucking cases with big damages. Uh, and so I think then what you have to do is decide, okay, what am I going to do with those? Now there's a few options. One is you can say my personal practice is going to be a small volume practice, like the top five or ten cases at the firm, and then I'm going to still have a larger volume practice on the cases that make more sense to run a larger volume. But those are going to be different lawyers and different teams in really a, a different way, of, they're different business units. Or I'm going to take a certain type of case and then refer out or bring in an oath counselor or get someone else to run that other kind of case. So I'm either gonna be the person that's running a volume thing or I'm gonna be the person that's gonna have the uh, you know the smaller docket and refer everything else out or bring in co-counsel or partner to handle that. Isn't it true though that it's, it's also the individual lawyer's risk tolerance because I have uh, friends who have very low uh, dockets, you know, three or four cases, and those are the cases they invest their time, energy, and money on. But if that case goes south, I mean, there is a lot of money on the line if you have uh, of just a few big cases. Um, and that's, you know, I don't know that I could do that either because of my risk tolerance. It, that's very true, and that's been... You know, one of the things I have about this kind of hybrid model, that's why I built up a law firm, quite frankly, is I want to be able to work on those few cases myself and feel like I'm an artist and I'm doing a really good job on them and we're getting really good recoveries on those cases. Uh, I also, though, have a lot of opportunities for cases that are worth doing. Uh, they're not cases I want to turn away, but they're not cases I necessarily can justify spending a lot of my personal time on. And you know, luckily we found a really good team of lawyers here that, um, and not just lawyers, the paralegals, everybody else, it's a team effort that can work on those cases. I can, I can coach, I can teach, I can come in where it makes sense for me to come in on a big deposition or a trial, but then I don't have to do the day-to-day -day stuff. And I think that approach works too. But again, if we had 100 cases per lawyer, it wouldn't uh, at our firm. But 
So you just kind of have to figure out what you want to be. So the listener in South Dakota actually asked that question. So when you're reducing the number of cases in your office, does that mean you're necessarily reducing the number of staff? Well, you could. I mean, I know people that have done it that way. They've just gone to just them or them and one person in a small number of cases. I actually have more staff uh, now uh, with fewer cases, and I'm, uh, I'm making more money. Uh, per staff member making more money as a firm um, and that is that as you get one if you can impre- increase the quality of case you have and your average fee goes up then you can increase the amount of manpower or woman power you can put into that case uh, and so you can pay better uh, which helps you re- re- you know attract better employees and team members and you can hire more people and have more people working on that case if it's a big enough case to justify it. So I don't know that you necessarily end up reducing staff. Now, again, the the people you need for a small volume, high quality case firm might not be the same people that you need uh, for a high volume firm. A high volume firm, you have to have someone that can say, hey, we're going to do something that's going to work right 80% of the time. We're, we got to run the volume. If a mistake gets made, we don't like it, but things are going to happen. Well, what uh, if- whereas the boutique firm has to say we need to try to be perfect. What I have found after you know work fine-tuning this uh, model that we have for the last year is the more time I spend thinking and dreaming and you know worrying about one case the more things to do that I wake up with and the more staff I feel like I need to help me get all of those things done but the ability to focus on one case for for an extended period of time really does create this universe of all of these fabulous things we can do to make that case better and all these different angles to look at the case from which means that your one assistant isn't going to be enough to get it all done. And so what I've found in the last year is the luxury of being able to focus your time and energy on one case actually creates much more work than um, than I previously appreciated. Yeah, and you just have to be able to uh, financially get through that transition. And, uh, and I will tell you, there is... At I've kind of seen like my practice have certain steps and there's pain involved in every step. So I went from, uh, back when I started, I'm really dating myself, we still could profitably do medical by practice cases in Texas. And so I started with a car wreck docket and I earned it. I earned, I guess, the right to get better cases because I got some good results trying soft tissue car wreck cases, then got verdicts other people weren't getting. So people started interesting me with some medical negligence cases. So when I went from that, okay, get the client to the doctor, uh, get the pay for the medical bills, pay the doctor, the chiropractor five hundred dollars to testify at trial. Business model to having to hire experts on medical negligence cases, and none of that being tax deductible, uh, and having to do more depositions, and having to hire a more sophisticated paralegal that understood the medical stuff. There was a pain point. There was a year where my personal income went down because I was having to basically invest in the practice. Uh, and then that started going well, and then uh, a few years after that, I started getting uh, product liability cases. That was a huge pain point. Uh, one, because I didn't know how to pick the cases yet, so I 
took some cases and spent a lot of money and time on cases that weren't that good, but two, the expert costs are astronomical in those cases. Uh, and so I had another you know, year or two where my personal income went down, my stress went up, my financial pressure was, I mean, we'd be at the you know, very teeter top of our lines of credit uh, and, and had to go through that pain. And then last year when we fully, we were kind of making the commitment, but when we fully committed to doing this lower volume model uh, and started saying no to more cases and you know, trying to get the right team in place, uh, there was definitely a pain point uh, where we were up to the limits in our line of credit. I remember you were coming to the firm at that time. Mm -hmm. It had to scare the hell out of you. <laughs> uh, and I knew, okay. I knew we'd get past it, but you know, I could either have continued in the way I was comfortable or I could make a change that I knew was going to cause temporary pain in order to have a, a greater benefit later. And you, you've got to get through it and, uh, and have faith. And, you know, and I, don't, I don't know how I've gotten through some of them. I mean, it's... I remember sometimes it's by the grace of God that I was about to go broke and then unexpectedly settled a case. Uh, or way back when, when I first started off, we had had some residual local council fees from uh, the firm that I was at that where my boss kind of quit and I took over the firm. And we'd get like a asbestos case local council fee out of the blue when I was just about to miss payroll. Uh, and somehow it's all just through divine intervention, I guess, worked. Uh, but well, I don't know that it's divine intervention. I think when you look back at some of the lower points, and I've had those too in my practice, is you keep going. Yeah. And you can't um, sit back and bury your head in the sand and assume that it's going to fix itself. I mean, the reality is that lawyers who are able to turn things around from the lowest points have had to become disciplined and say I'm not number one I'm not going to give up I'm going to keep fighting and we're going to you know I remember there were times in my practice where we suddenly went through the office and did an analysis of where we were uh, bleeding money and we hired the plant watering people and we realized that our law clerks were printing on bond paper and you know you start going through and um, cutting where you can and um, don't give up. Yeah. I think those painful times have actually been really good for me uh, in the long run. They weren't fun, but I think one, yeah, going through and you, you do build up a lot of waste. You, you get contracts, you get things that automatically renew, things that you need at one time you don't really need anymore, and it makes you actually go through there and cut that stuff out. But more importantly, I don't think if you know, I, I came out of law school with kind of an anti-business attitude. That, you know, uh, corporations are bad, therefore running your law firm like a business is bad. Uh, it's all going to be, you know, everyone's going to be happy, utopia-type place. <laughs> uh, and I actually had a little bit of guilt about making money, too. Uh, and I think the suffering, the hard times, the almost going broke along the way uh, forced me to realize I need to learn how to run a business as well to run a law firm. I need to study this as much as I've studied law uh, or give up or, or, or go work for someone else that does. Uh, and ironically what I found is that like happiness for example, I think our employees are much happier at a well-run business than one that's kind of, oh let's all just try to get along. You know, people like some structure. Uh, 
plus, when you're making money, it's easier to be nice and happy. <laughs> you're less. You're certainly <laughs> less grumpy, Michael. Yeah. And that's not intentional. It's just uh, it's hard to be all cheerful all the time when you're worried about uh, how you're going to make payroll next week. That's true. Uh, that's true. Okay, so. No, we did not lay off staff when we reduced ours, but some people might have to, but we do have, I hate to say it, different staff because there were people that were great for a different business model that are not the right fit for our current business model. And it does not serve them or you. Uh, and I'm not saying you just go out and fire people, but if, if you're going to change the firm and you're changing the rules of the game on someone, I think you know you need to owe it to yourself and to them to look at, is this person still a good fit for us? And if not, you know, what can we do to ease the pain on both of us and find a, tra a transition for that person uh, into a model where that person can succeed? One point that um, is important about the whole issue with staff, uh, at one point in my practice, uh, there was a very deliberate decision not to do pre-litigation claims. Um, but we'd had an employee who had been with the firm for 20 years, longer than I'd been practicing, who handled pre-litigation pre claims. And so one mistake I think lawyers can make sometimes is keeping a business model for the people around them and making emotional decisions as opposed to making an economic business decision that you have committed to. And so I think that that sometimes can be really hard. Um, but in talking about reducing staff, like you said, if, if you're going to commit to a certain model, it means going all in, and sometimes that means letting go of, of those people who um, can't adjust to your new model. Yeah, and some people just aren't going to be the right fit for your new model, and I don't suggest you fire them, uh, especially if they've worked for you for 20 years. Uh, I do suggest you do a real analysis of, of their skills and temperaments and have an open and honest discussion with them about, hey, we're changing here. It's not going to be the way it's been. You know, we want to work with you, but here's some changes that you're going to have to make. And, you know, if we're not the right place for you, you know, I will call my friends and say, I've got someone who's a great prelit person. We're not doing prelit anymore. This is a great opportunity for you and her, or you and him. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've done that before. I've helped someone get a job somewhere else. I and, think that and, that and helps us all sleep easier. And it and it's the right thing to do. And it and it it's better than having the person quit, upset at you, or frustrated, or you firing the person a year later. Trial Lawyer Nation is proud to partner with Trial Guides, leader in continuing education for civil plaintiff and criminal defense trial lawyers, with books, DVDs, CLEs, live webinars, and more. Visit trialguides.com and use code TLN19 at checkout to receive our exclusive podcast discount on any Trial Guides products. That's TLN for Trial Lawyer Nation and the number 19. Discount expires August 31st, 2019. And now, back to the show. One um, listener uh, sent in a question about damages, which is one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, I thought it was interesting that the listener asked if we're ever embarrassed because our damage number is so high. I mean, is it ever embarrassing? What number is too high 
um, to the point to where it gets embarrassing? And I thought that was an interesting question. What are your thoughts? Well, uh, if you're embarrassed by it, you certainly should not ever mention that number in front of a jury. Uh, if you don't passionately believe that that number is fair and any less than that is an injustice, then it's probably not a number you should be throwing out there. And I've made that mistake. I've, just, I've thrown out high numbers just because I know they're going to pull me down. And, I, and you could tell by my pauses, facial expressions, voice inflection that I didn't truly believe it. And I haven't done that well when that's happened. Uh, so I'm not judging. I'm speaking from painful experience that, you know, if you don't believe the number, then you either need to go get into your case more until you believe it or you need to come up with a different number. And I think that sometimes when lawyers don't believe the number or are embarrassed by the number, the reality is they just don't know their client's pain well enough. They don't know their client's damages well enough. You know, this is what we get paid to do. I mean, we are hired to help explain and, and advocate for our clients intangible damages. And if a lawyer is taking three times the meds or advocating that their case is worth some formula of the medical, I would argue that that lawyer isn't doing what they've been retained to do, and that is help the opposing side understand the true value of your client's pain and impairment and disfigurement. So the argument about, you know, I have a client right now who's got a scar on her forehead, a 42-year-old woman with a very visible scar on her forehead that she will live with for the rest of her life. Yeah, but so, people in their 40s are so old, what's the matter? <laughs> <laughs> Says the guy getting ready to turn 50. <laughs> and I'm going to kick you under the table. Um, but so what is that case worth? And so it, it's it's hard work. It's, you know, it's why we love what we do. It's why I love what I do because that case is worth very, uh, you know, that damage, that scar on the forehead is worth something completely different on a 42-year-old woman than it is on a 78-year-old man. And it's worth something different on a child or somebody that, you know, has their hair growing over their forehead or, you know, all of these nuances that make our practice fun. But the idea that a lawyer would be embarrassed by a high damage um, model, I thought was, was, is an interesting question and something that um, reveals that lawyer may not exactly know what it is we're doing. Are the, there may be something within the lawyer that's holding the lawyer back. What is the, you know, what, what are, you know, if it was me, for example, I would be like, what are my issues? Okay, say I've got someone that's, I believe they're really hurt. Uh, I know on paper that that's what their damage model is, but I'm not feeling it or I'm having trouble expressing it to other people. Then is there something in my life and my experiences that I need to work through to get past what's holding me back? Uh, and I've had to do some real, you know, Josh Carton, for example, has put me through some real tough work uh, on, and some other work with my therapist on self-worth uh, as far as whether, you know, I'm worth asking for that kind of money or my guilt about getting my part of that kind of money is holding me back or my feelings that I might be seen as greedy because I'm asking for a big number because I, I'm trying to get rich. Uh, and I've had to work through that and get to where, like, I'm not even thinking about me. I'm not even thinking about whether I'm winning or losing. Sorry to Lamont has a great podcast uh, from Hostage to Hero I was listening to recently. Uh, from what to hear? From Hostage to Heroes. Hostage. Ju juries are brought in there against their wills like hostages and you want to turn them into heroes and how do you do that? Uh, it's really neat. Uh, if, if you 
listen to ours first, but if you have time, and we're going to have her on the show pretty soon. But uh, oh, awesome. uh, she has really inspired me. But I mean, sorry, it really talks about you know just, you have to change the story in your head. You have to go in there just believing it. And she has some techniques on how to do that. And it's just so important that if you don't work through your own stuff. Uh, it will interfere with your ability to justice for your client. And oh, I remember what she was talking about. It's the same thing I learned from Leeserman is you want to be 100% dedicated to doing everything you can to win a case. But when you're trying it, you cannot be attached to the result. Uh, and so, and it's a weird dynamic. It's like foot athletes, they get in the flow and it just happens. And so like when I'm picking a jury and I'm talking to a juror, if I am thinking, are you going to be a good or bad juror for me while I'm talking to you and I'm judging you, and then when you say something I don't like, it's going to have a microfacial expression or a vibe that you're going to get, I'm not going to get a good jury. I'm not going to form a bond. Uh, if I'm giving my closing and I'm worried about, am I going to win this case or not? Uh, when I'm in my closing, I just have to be 100% focused on, I am communicating with this juror. I am speaking to whoever I'm speaking to right now and giving the message of truth and not worrying about winning and losing. And it's weird because it's like, you, you don't want to say you don't care about winning and losing because you do. But you can't be so attached and so scared of losing or scared of not getting it that you can't be in the moment and uh, communicate uh, what you're trying to communicate. And so... It's a Zen thing. I know it's hard to, to, hard so to put into words. When, when, how does that translate to uh, owning and believing your damage model? Well, I think it's just getting past insecurities. I mean, I think one of the reasons we have a problem with our damage models are worried people aren't going to believe us. We don't trust the juror to give us that money uh, because either we don't believe ourselves, and that's one thing to work through, or we don't have enough trust in other people. You have to get past that. You have to have the story in your head. These are good people that are in here trying to do the right thing, and I just need to give them the tools they need to go out here and take over from me. I thought to this point they're going to go in that room and do the rest of the fighting and you're just not worried about whether you're winning or losing the case. All you're worried about is, I am making a human connection with this person and I am communicating what I know and feel, which is that this person deserves X amount of dollars. And I think that the coming, the coming up with the X amount of dollars that we're asking for from a jury means that we have to do our homework and we have to understand the, the you know, the details of each element of damage that we're asking for and why. And if possible, do focus groups and when you get to a number that starts turning people off, well then maybe you've... But you have to ask for a whole lot because they're, you know, most of the time they're going to bring it down. And they expect you to ask for a lot. It doesn't really... It's in our heads. They, they really do expect us to ask for big numbers and if they believe that the defendant deserves to pay it, they don't have a problem doing it. It's when we have our own insecurities that get in the way that we keep it from we like we tri we trip over our own shoelaces all the time. Another question we always get asked about books all the time, uh, you know, because we mention a lot of books on this thing is, you know, have people. And I'm running my own law firm. Uh, I want to try to make it better. What are some books that you've read that you recommend to law firm owners or managers? Well, I think you're the perfect person to answer that. You've just spent a weekend reading an inordinate number of practice books, law practice books. You have to realize that I'm, I'm a psycho. Uh, <laughs> and so, we'll edit that part out. No, you don't. I mean, I'm, I don't, normal people don't do what I did. So we went to a, a seminar with a litigation strategist named Rodney Jew, who we like a lot. And Rodney, he's actually 
given the presentation before, but he referenced a book called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lincioni. Uh, and I read the book. I mean, what he said resonated me, and it was all about, you know, how to, Rodney's talking about how we need smaller dockets and how we have to get a good team together and what makes a good team. Uh, and the book really resonated with me, and so then I read on the same weekend two other books that he wrote. I don't say that you have to read three books in a weekend to be a uh, to be an author. I mean, to, to practice law or to run a law firm. But I just when I get into something, I get into something, uh, and you know I'm now trying to apply it. But I mean, I think a few things. One, he talks about how you build a team, and so you know what he he starts with. Uh, the dysfunctions, I like to start with what makes a functional team. So the first dysfunction would be absence of trust. Uh, I'd say that the first functional then would be trust. And so what he says by trust in the team members is not just that you trust that you'll do what you say to do, but he calls it vulnerability-based trust. So I trust that our relationship is strong enough that I can admit to a mistake in front of you and you're not going to reject me, that I can disagree with you and you're not going to take the disagreement as something personal, but as I were discussing the, the issue, and you can disagree with me and feel comfortable that I'm not going to attack you and we're still going to be friends afterwards. So that's the first level of, uh, of function or dysfunction. The second level then becomes a dysfunctional team has a lack of conflict, and that really threw me for a loop because I would think that conflict would not be what you'd want, and a functional team has healthy conflict. And what the, di what the difference between the healthy and the unhealthy is, unhealthy conflict is you're a bad person, I don't like you, you're lazy. The good conflict is We've each gone into this meeting with a different idea. If we can't both express our ideas and debate it and have the right to get a little passionate and heated about it because we really think it's the right idea, then what's going to happen? Then we're not going to we're not going to we're going to leave the meeting not feeling like we've been listened to. We're going to go have a conversation with someone else out in the hall complaining about it, uh, and so we don't. And then the the team organization doesn't get the full benefit of having everyone's ideas there because people don't feel like they can give their ideas or they could argue without being rejected or hurt or fired, and that goes back to the lack of trust with each other. So when you get the, the ability to have healthy conflict, everyone in the meeting feels like they can be heard and they have been heard, then you get to, if you have a healthy team, commitment. If you have an unhealthy team, lack of commitment. Uh, Intel has the saying, you know, disagree and commit. Like, okay, we've, we've been here, we've all had our say, I've been listened to, and I might not agree with the decision we came up with, but because I've been part of this team and they've at least listened to me and I understand why they're not accepting my idea, I can still commit to it. We're all going to commit to a common goal. Then the fourth step, sorry I've been talking a long time, but it's five step, is accountability. Because we're all, we all committed together, then now everyone on the team, it's not just the person at the top holding us accountable, we're holding each other accountable. So, you know, like if you and I are working on a case and I said, Sonia, I'm going to get you a motion by tomorrow. And it's the next day, you say, Michael, where's that motion? Instead right. of like not saying anything because you don't want it, because you, again, because. I don't want to make you feel bad. Because <laughs> yeah, because we don't have enough trust that by you saying something to me, you're worried I'm going to get mad or my feelings are going to get hurt. You know, you just need to tell me, Michael, you say you're going to do this. Why didn't you do it? We have to hold each other accountable. Uh, and the same for, you know, the, the team members, instead of, you know, paralegal going to management, a paralegal talks to the lawyer or talks to the paralegal, hey, we, you know, we need to get this done. We, we, this is what we committed to. And so when you finally get that, then you have uh, attention to the results. You care about the results of a good team. If you have a, a team that's dysfunctional, people just start caring about what they do and they don't really care about the result of the firm or the result of what the team's trying to do. Uh, so that I thought was a great thing and we try to do that. The other thing he has is the, 
the truth about employee engagement, it talks about what makes a miserable job and how to make the job, your employees are not miserable. Uh, we've had more turnover than I want in our firm, and so I really have actually, that's something we're trying to implement. It's, again, this guy, I love Lentoni because it's so simple. He says, what makes a miserable job? And he's done a lot of research into it, and he goes, there's three things. Anonymity, uh, immeasurability, and irrelevance. So anonymity, does the, do the people you're working for even know who you are? Do they know anything about you? Do they care about you as a person? If you feel like you're just some anonymous cog in the machine, it's miserable. Immeasurability, is there a way to know whether I am doing a good job and is it something within my control? Uh, and, and those two are big components of it. So say you're a lawyer at a firm. If the only way you know you're doing a good job or not is by the numbers that you put up, is that within your control? Not really. No. Yeah. How good is the case? How gener which insurance company do you have on the other side? Are they someone right. selling quick or someone dragging it out? What kind of docket do you did you carry? Get a, yeah. Did you get a continuance granted? What judge did you get? I mean, that has all those things are outside your control. Uh, and the great example he gave in the book is a, he, he always makes a story up. He calls it a fable. And so it's like a restaurant. And they were trying to implement this in the restaurant. They had a guy at the drive through window who was like, messing up orders all the time. And you know, if his, his thing was how much are you selling at the drive-through, or how long does it take each order to get done, well, he doesn't have control over that. And so he says, I want you to measure two things: one, how many orders have you did you make that weren't right, because that is within his control whether he assembles it properly before he hands it to him, and how many people did you, how many smiles did you get from people, because he's trying to get them to be friendlier. Those are both things he has control over. And so can you find ways to measure people, where people can measure whether they're doing a good job that are within their control and let them know that that's what it is. And then the third thing is irrelevance. So do people feel like what they're doing makes a difference to somebody in their life? Uh, and then who is that somebody? And so for some people, you know, for ours, it's easy. We're making a difference in our clients' lives. We're making a difference to public safety. So you know, as a lawyer in personal injury field, that's a pretty easy thing to do. Uh, as a file clerk, they make a huge difference. If they are filing things correctly, if they're routing the discovery to the right people, it makes a huge difference. But maybe it makes a huge difference to the lawyer's life or the paralegal's life. Like, you make my life better. You know, uh, you make my family, you know, whatever it is. But, you know, they have to understand, if to be happy, to not be miserable in your job, you have to have some understanding that what you're doing is relevant in the greater good you're doing some greater good even if it's just you're making your boss's life a little easier at least you feel like you have some significance to what you're doing i tremendously appreciate a full stapler <laughs> the ability to pick up a stapler and actually have it have staples in there <laughs> makes my life better <laughs> i can't overstate that Okay. And I really mean that. I know you There's do. nothing more frustrating than when you're in a groove getting your stuff done and you don't have a full stapler. There's nothing more frustrating than coming on a weekend and because you are good at delegating, you have no clue where anything is stored <laughs> <laughs> and you can't find any staples for your stapler. So I appreciate the staff. And so it'll be in the show notes. I'm pretty sure Lencioni is L-E-N-C-I-O-N-I. Uh, his books are on Amazon, uh, but the five dysfunctions of a team, the truth about uh, employee engagement, and there's one called the advantage, which is kind of his process for putting it all together, is uh, things that there are three books that I've had our manager have our manager reading, and we are going to we are trying to implement in our firm. So ask me again in six months, and I'll tell you what the shit works. <laughs>
So how, how important is it, Michael, for lawyers who run businesses to get information from the outside universe on what goes wrong or what goes right? I think, you know, I've been practicing 20 years and have known, you know, thousands of lawyers. I don't know that I've ever met anybody that reads as much as you do um, about non-legal related uh, practice ideas, management ideas, or listens to podcasts and or visits with um, outside experts. I mean, it's. I think it's it's unique. I mean, how much of that is really necessary to be able to efficiently run a law practice? Well, if you want to be happy and successful, I think it's really necessary, and there's a few reasons. One, I didn't think of this stuff myself. I've looked at who have I seen who seems to be happy, have some work-life balance, and makes a lot of money uh, while being a decent lawyer. And most of those people, when I've talked to them, uh, have read things and got inspiration th from things and uh, outside of law. Because a business, what legal is legal, and then there's a lot of unique things to what we do, and there's an art to it, but running a business is running a business, and we have a lot to learn uh, from that. I think most law, law firms are dysfunctional. Uh, I think every law firm I've worked in, uh, hopefully ours is not that way anymore, but um, it's just not utopia yet, but we're working on it. Um, has been a badly run dysfunctional business with unhappy people. Uh, and so if I want to learn how to run a business that serves my life and that has happy employees, I really can't learn a whole lot from my industry because everyone else I see in my industry doesn't seem happy. We have a high suicide rate, a high drug and alcoholism rate. If I want to change that, then I need to look outside of what we're doing. The other thing is, I'm, I think in the consulting and marketing world where lawyers are known as rich suckers uh, and what I found is anything that like legal marketing as opposed to marketing it'll be three times the cost and one-third the effectiveness <laughs> uh, and I found that with other uh, I don't want to name anybody but I found that with other people that are advising lawyers or stuff like that is that we're, we're deemed to have money we're deemed to be suckers and you can get a lot of ineffective stuff that costs you a bunch or you can spend 20 bucks or 15 bucks on a book that works for other businesses um, you know and I like Lanchoni his stuff you know worked for Southwest Airlines I'm like thinking well Southwest Airlines you know as much as I don't like the non-assigned seats you know they they seem to have happy employees uh, they seem to be nicer to me than other airlines and they don't charge any more for a ticket they you certainly know. sing more on the plane than any other airline and that's part of their front culture fun I, I looked it up this morning uh, I woke up at four something and couldn't get back to sleep. And because uh, Lynchoni tells a story that the CEO of Southwest had a, a complaint letter from a customer and they said, hey, during the safety briefing, your flight attendant was telling jokes. And I think it's very inappropriate to bring comedy into something so important as aircraft safety. Uh, and so you've got to really look at what are your company values when you get that letter. What would the average person say? I am so sorry, we're going to talk to the employee, uh, but one of the three core values of Southwest Airlines is fun-loving, and they use the LUV, uh, and the comedy is part of who they are, it's part of what they're hiring for and what they want to give, and so the CEO just hand wrote on the letter, we'll miss you, and sent it back. Wow. Uh, because they're not going to change who they are and that's to make one person happy, and I think as a result, 
you know, if I have to fly on a commercial airline, I think Southwest is not a bad one to fly on because at least they're going to be nice to me when I'm sitting in that can with no legroom. Right. <laughs> you know, whereas United, I mean, they charge you a bunch of money, it's a miserable experience, and they're not even nice to you. <laughs> I hate United. I'll say it. They can sue me about it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all so much for sending your questions. Please keep sending them. Well, we're going to try to keep answering them. I hope. You found this useful. Uh, we've got a really exciting guest on our next episode, so I hope you tune in next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you're listening to this episode on a mobile device, please click on Ratings and Review and leave our show a five-star rating and write a review. And if you're listening to this episode from our website, please leave a five-star rating on the episode page. We'd love to reach more listeners, and doing this will help more attorneys find this podcast. You can also visit our website at www.triallawyernation.com to opt into our mailing list so you can stay updated on our new episodes. I promise we won't spam you. And thanks to your feedback, we've improved our podcast website. There's now a resources tab that you can click that shows you all the books we've mentioned on our podcast. If you have a Facebook account, please send us a request to join a private group called Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle. This exclusive group will allow you to hear about our guests before an episode airs, interact with the show, and get a sneak peek at some of the behind-the-scenes moments. I love to hear from all of you, and our Table Talk episodes are based solely on questions from our fans. So please continue to send us emails at podcast at triallawyernation.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide. Are you an attorney with a catastrophic injury or wrongful death case you'd like to discuss with host Michael Cowan? If so, you can reach Michael by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to michael at cowanlaw.com. We look forward to talking with you again soon as we continue to explore powerful insights from our amazing host and remarkable guests here on Trial Lawyer Nation. Until then, please be sure to subscribe and review this podcast on iTunes or your favorite listening app so we can continue to reach more listeners. Visit us at www.triallawyernation.com to send us a message, listen to previous podcasts, or learn more about Michael Cowan and our guests. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.